we are continuing our series. Actually, we are concluding our series today called The God of Me. And uh, we are, uh, we have been talking about uh, these idols that we set up in our lives. And uh, we began by talking about uh, the Ten Commandments and, and saying, you know, it's, it's, it becomes this checklist. And in fact, it, comes a, it becomes a pretty easy checklist. You know, okay, don't murder, don't steal. Um, and then we get uh, preferencing, uh, pre- uh, preferencing it a little bit by uh, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. And, and it starts to become a little bit more personal. And we start to take a little bit harder look at it, especially where Jesus says, you know, is, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say uh, that even if you have anger and you harbor bitterness towards somebody in your heart, you're, you've, you've uh, committed that, that sin. And he goes on to say, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You know, the Ten Commandments talk about don't covet your neighbor's wife. And uh, so we say, okay, but Jesus says, even if you look upon a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed that, that sin. And so we start assessing these things a little bit more uh, on an analytical side of things and, and, and rather than just simply checking a box. But one thing we fairly easy to conclude is we go on ahead and we say, okay, well, there's one of those sins that's just a, it's a no-brainer, and that is the, the graven images or the idols or creating the other gods. That's something I would never do. And yet what we talked about was that the, the, the truth behind that is that that is the one sin that all other sins flow out of. You see, any sin that we commit... It harkens back to the one sin of worshiping something other than God, putting something before God. You know, it's very easy for us to say, oh, I'd be the last person to put a, a, an idol in my front room or in my living room or in, my, you know, in our family room and, and bow down and worship it. I don't have that problem. That's not something that, that I struggle with. And yet, even though it's not a physical idol, there are plenty of idols that we put up and we replace God with. We take God off the throne and we put those other things on the throne. And a lot of that is based on fear and worry and, and the anxiety and stress and us wanting to control things and not necessarily heeding to or thinking that God is capable of taking care of those things. And so what do we do? We satisfy those things on our own. So today I'd like us to take a journey through Scripture. And my goal is to illustrate that this is a battle that we all face. This is a battle that we are all facing. You know, it's not just for us to point the finger and say, okay, well, it's for those people over there, or it's for those people back in history, it's for those people in in biblical times. You see, there's a, a story that goes through Scripture that's our story as well. It starts with, this, with the redemption of God's people and what God has done in his people's lives, what God has done in our lives. It, it goes on to talk about the rejection that, that God's people are prone to push back and push away from God and to run from him and to, to walk away from his plans and purpose for their life. It's a story of revelation that God is this God who continues to pursue us regardless of how far or in what direction we run. That God is this God who is constantly saying to his people, here I am. 
You know, God is this God who is transcendent. He is overall. He's an amazing God. He's omnipotent, omniscient. He's, he's everything, and yet he's a God who is near. And in theological terms, this om, omnipresent God, this transcendent God is also an imminent God, a God who is here, a God who is now, God with us. He's constantly pursuing in this revelatory nature. And there's this return. God has come. He sent his son Jesus to fix that which was broken. And that's the narrative. That's the story. That's the illustration of scripture that I want us to tap into today and overlay that on our lives and see what God is doing in our lives and how he would have us respond you know, when I was a kid, we, uh, we lived in a house that had an unfinished basement. It seemed to be a common thing back then in the 60s and 70s. You buy a house, you know, you have the living level. And then, you know, as your family grows and expands and your kids grow up, you kind of, you finish the basement. And we had this walkout basement. So it wasn't this dark, dingy place, even though at times I, you know, I'd go down to, uh, you know, get something. And I knew the boogeyman lived down there and I had to make it quick and get down there and get, and I don't know about home builders. They'd always put the the light switch for the basement at the farthest end away from the stairs. I just don't get it, just to torment kids. They just would do that. But anyways, uh, my dad was in the process of, of uh, uh, not renovating, but, but finishing our unfinished basement. And he'd had the insulation in and had a lot of, done a lot of the electrical. And what was sitting in there was, was just these stacks of, of uh, sheetrock leaned up against one of the walls. I, I forget how many sheets there were, but my buddy, uh, so I was about kindergarten, maybe first grade. My buddy Steve and I, Steve-O and I were in our, in our basement. We were playing. We were probably playing uh, you know, floor hockey or something and hitting each other up against the boards. But... I remember this vividly. We were playing around and we ran into this, this stack of sheetrock that was leaned up against the, the, the wall. And all of a sudden, this stack started coming over me. Steve ran off and I got trapped. I got pinned under this stack of sheetrock. Now, this is heavy stuff. And as a, you know, a five-year-old, six-year-old at the time, I, I was stuck uh, I, all I remember was panic. I don't remember whether I could breathe or not. I'm sure I could, but I was, I, I thought I was dying. So did Steve, the way he was running around like a schoolgirl uh, screaming. Now, Steve was a, he was a big dude and he was trying his hardest to lift that up. And as he was panicking and screaming and trying to lift this up, I thought I was a goner. And all of a sudden, my mom comes running down the stairs. It was during the day. My dad was at work. My brothers were off somewhere there. Either that or they heard my screams and didn't care. But anyways, I was trapped. And my mom, one sheet at a time, starts lifting this stuff off of me. I was set free from a place where I was trapped. And this is truly the story of God's people. It's truly a story. God's people trapped in bondage, unable to save themselves. And the story that we hear from the very beginning of Scripture to a people who are ravaged in sin and, and caught in their predicament, God comes to save. Over in Exodus chapter 6, you have God's people. This is early in the Old Testament. 
And they've ended up, the people of Israel have ended up living in Egypt. And they've, they've gone down there because during a famine, God, it's, it's the story of Joseph. Joseph ends up down in, in Egypt and he's there in, in a high position in Pharaoh's government to help not only the, the people of Egypt, but to help God's people. And God's people moved down from Israel. They moved down to Egypt during this, this famine and they are saved but we read in scripture that, that that Pharaoh died and another Pharaoh took the throne. Another Pharaoh came into power and into leadership who knew nothing of Joseph, knew nothing of the history and, and really had, had no frame of reference in, in who Joseph was or what he'd done. And as a result, not just Joseph, but all of God's people are put into slavery. In fact, the Egyptians were, were, were freaking out because of all these foreigners living in their land. And so they subjected them to, to cruel punishment and, and, and slavery. They enslaved God's people. So here are God's people in a foreign country under a stack of sheetrock needing to be set free. And look at... Exodus chapter six, verse six, and here's what God says. He says, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand and give, uh, sorry, to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And here you have God speaking to his people and saying, I will redeem you. And God follows through with his promise. He raises up Moses. You know the story. He, he leads them out of Egypt. He leads them through the, the Red Sea and leads them toward the promised land. He has redeemed them. And there's this, this theme of redemption throughout scripture. There's a theme of redemption in our life. And you'd think that as a result of this happening, Israel would, would remember this forever and never, ever leave or turn from this relationship that they had with God. And yet, sadly, it's like nanoseconds. It's like they get outside of the, the, the gates of the city in Egypt and they're immediately grumbling, griping, and complaining. They've immediately forgotten and this is over and over throughout Israel's history. There's, this, there's accounts of them turning from the Lord. And just like little kids, there's this rejection factor. God has redeemed. God has set his people free. And yet immediately there's this pushback. There's this animosity. Why isn't God doing this? Why isn't he? If he was such a good God, then why is this happening? Why is this? And, and there's this pushback. Is rejection. Immediately in the desert, the people of God are grumbling, they're griping, they're complaining. This happens in the wilderness. This happens even when they come into the promised land. They settle in the promised land. And, and there's this ongoing narrative of them pushing back and rejecting the Lord. 
In the book of Judges alone, you ever done a study through the book of Judges, read through the book of Judges? Seven times, it's like a carbon copy. And for those under 30, you don't know what a carbon copy is, just, you know, Google it or something. But, you know, it's this, it's this ongoing repetition where God saves them and then they do evil in the eyes of the Lord and they get themselves into trouble all again and, a, and a, an oppressing army comes in and, the, and it takes them captive and, and once again they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends somebody to save them and this happens seven times in one book of the Bible alone. It's like over and over again, this rejection, this pushing back from the Lord. Ultimately, they, they get to this point after the judges and they say, well, it's obviously because we have these judges, we need a king. All these other nations, they seem to be doing so well with a king. We need a king. So God, you're not good enough. We need our own way of doing things. So let's put a king in. And God says, you don't want that. And they say, yes, we do. And what happens? God puts a king in. Does it solve their problems? No, it doesn't. Again, they push back. They push away from the Lord time and time again. It says, hey, this king came to power and he did what? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, turned away from the Lord their God, set up these, these idols for the people of God to worship. King after king, and ultimately, this led to invading armies coming in and, and a divided kingdom of, of Israel and Judah, both taken into captivity. Why? Because of this pushing back and this rejection of God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Over in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through a prophet. And he has this indictment of the Lord's people, of his own people and what they are doing and where they've gone. And, and he kind of sums it up, what has gone on in their lives. Jeremiah 2, verse 9. He says, therefore, I, I bring these charges against you again, declares the Lord. I, I, he's saying through the prophet Israel, here's what the indictment is. Here's what you've done wrong. Look at verse 11. He says, my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. They've exchanged. They've, they've basically taken God off the throne, put him over here and replaced him with something else. Indictment. Look at verse 13. He goes on to say, my people have committed two sins. He says, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and then they have dug their own cisterns Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now you think of it in our terms and, and you think of maybe a water tower and that, and okay, water, water tower springs a leak, no big deal. They just go up and patch it and that. It's not, you know. But in, in those days, water was life. In a dry, arid, desert environment, if you didn't have water, you were gonna die. They needed that. They knew the importance of a, of a cistern that would hold water. It was funny, I was telling the first service that uh, when I was in college, I went down to visit my brother in, in uh, Kenya. He was uh, a teacher there for a couple of years and, and uh, he was on vacation. So we, we had booked um, a time with another missionary family down uh, in Mombasa, which is on the coast, but it's still a very dry, hot, a real arid place. Uh, and, and water's important. Drinking water is important. I remember uh, one morning we woke up and it sounded like there was a river flowing through the house. And in fact, there was. Uh, it's this kind of um, brick adobe kind of house that had, that had concrete stairs going upstairs. And there was literally water. There was a waterfall coming down the stairs. 
when we woke up in the morning, I, I, I got out of bed and I was standing in two inches of water. We went up and found out that there was a cistern on the roof that they had for collecting water that used for showering and drinking. And it had busted a leak, like a big leak, and it was flooding the house. It wasn't a good, it wasn't a good thing. It came to mind when I was reading Jeremiah here and saying, you know what? My people, God's people had, had forsaken God, the living water, and they're trying to manufacture and build these things that, that are trying to take care of their needs on their own. And you know what? They're not doing a very good job because they're ineffective. It's as good as trying to collect rainwater in a sieve. It's just that futile. It's just that ineffective. And you know, it's, an, it's one thing to get pointing in scripture and going, man, <laughs> get a laugh out of it and go, man, how foolish can people be? How idiotic, why would anyone do that? And yet, as I mentioned at the beginning of our message this morning, is that my hope and prayer is that this would be an illustration of how truly we interact with God. Because we do the same thing. It just happens in different forms, in different ways. We replace God with different things, but the idea is still the same. We replace God with other things. So I don't want us to point at Scripture and say, oh, those foolish people. I'd like us to look at Scripture and say, what does this book reveal about me? What, is, what does this say about how I interact with God? How does, this, how does this reflect and expose the way that I push back from God and replace him with other things in my life? And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about areas of our lives. We've been particularly talking about giving on the financial side of things. And I know in, in church, that's something that, that, that just really has an awkward conversation at times. But it's been my prayer and my desire is that our hearts would be open to hear what God would have to speak to us about. See, because that's one area among many that we simply, we react to out of fear and worry and anxiety and stress and we, we try to manage it on our own rather than surrendering to what God has for us and following his will for our lives. We try to manage and secure and protect these things on our own strength and our own knowledge and our own ability. And, and here Jeremiah was saying, Israel, you've turned away from God. He's the, the one who is, is the, the one who gives the life-giving uh, water, the life-giving sustenance, all that you need. And here you've fabricated your own life support system that, that doesn't work. And we do the same. We reject God. We erect our own idols like the Israelites did. We find the security and the safety and comfort in other things. We disregard God's plan for our lives and we exchange his model for our own model. And you know, sadly, this happens. Sadly, this happens. It's throughout the Old Testament. And you'd think that God would just kind of give up and go, you know what? <laughs> Man, I've tried. I, 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 Lord knows I've tried. But thankfully he doesn't. He doesn't give up. And instead he ramps up the intent. Hear me. He ramps up the intent. And he reveals himself even more. 
I said, God is a God who reveals. God is a God who is constantly saying, here I am. You know, we get pretty good at plugging our ears like a two-year-old does and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. We get really good at doing that. But God is still going, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. God pursues us. One theologian wrote a book, The Hound of Heaven. He wrote this sermon called The Hound of Heaven. This is God who continues to pursue us, won't let go. Turn over to John chapter four. In John chapter four, there's a story, that, a familiar story. Jesus is walking into a, into a town and uh, there's a well and it's the middle of the day and he's approaching the well and there's a woman that's coming to the well at the same time as he is. It's noon, it's middle of the day. It's not a place where either of them should really be at that time of day. You see, people traditionally would, would come and the women would come to the well early in the morning to get the water for their homes for, it was kind of community well, and they'd come and they'd get the water for their home, they'd take it home, and that was the time of the day that you'd, you'd come and collect water. Well, this was noon, Jesus was there, Here's this woman. Something's out of place. Not only is it a woman, not only is it in the middle of the day, but this is a Samaritan woman. And, and by definition, a Samaritan was a non-person, according to the Jews. A, a, a Samaritan was a half-breed. Uh, they'd been intermarried uh, uh, with the invading army. Those who had taken uh, uh, God's people into captivity, they'd been, they'd been intermarried, so they were half-breeds. They weren't true-blooded uh, Jews. And so the Samaritans were, were dogs. They were non-people. And so not only was it a woman, Samaritan, middle of the day, something's wrong. And so Jesus approaches and says, I, I'd like something to drink. And, and she says, so you have nothing to, to scoop out the water with. And they get into this dialogue about the water. They get into this dialogue about life. He reveals that she's had five husbands. She's working on her sixth right now. You could tell that this was a woman of ill repute. This was a woman who had a lot of baggage, a lot of, a lot of socially inappropriate baggage. That's why she wasn't hanging out with all the other ladies. And in fact, she was coming to the, the well on her own in secret. And here Jesus sits down. Here's somebody who had done enough running and pushing back and rejecting because she herself had been pushed back away from and rejected. If anyone had a reason to, to push back and reject God and say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with it, she was. And yet what do we find here? Jesus is pushing in, pressing in closer and saying, here I am. And this is truly an encounter. This is a revelation of the heart of God. Look at verse 13 of John chapter four. Here Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water, this water that comes out of this physical well is gonna thirst again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. Again, 
It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. What he's saying is, you know what? You can chase after another guy. You can chase after husband number six and number seven, number eight, number nine. You can try to get the best job at the best, you know, whatever uh, company in the land. You can get the best 401k. You can, you can, you know, have the biggest bank account. You can manage and manipulate this thing any way you want. But you know what? You keep going back to that well and you're going to have to keep going back to that well because it's not going to satisfy and that's what he's saying to each and every one of us. We overlay the story into our lives and, and you say, oh man, that woman was in a hard spot. Oh man, that woman was rejecting God. Oh man, that woman was trying to do things on her own. She didn't understand who she was talking to. And yet, gosh, we do the exact same thing. We push back from God. We sit there. We try to do things on our own. We try to keep going back to the well and filling our own cup and filling our own cup, filling our own cup. And for some reason, it continues to be empty. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Let me show you some water. Let me show you some resources that are not in and of yourself that you need to tap into because when you do, you won't ever thirst again and there's going to be so much fulfillment there. She, you see, she was chasing fulfillment on her own terms. She was chasing, she was trying to, if I don't go in the morning, I'll be okay because I won't have to deal with those other ladies. If I go at the middle of the day, I won't have to, you know, no one will have to get into my mode. I can just go about my life in my own way. See, she was coping. She was managing. She was, she was, she was trying to affect her surroundings and her, and her well-being and her peace. Find your happy place. Find your happy place. Find your happy place. And yet even that becomes empty. And yet here's this plan that Jesus reveals. There's this ongoing invitation, this love letter from God inviting us back to him. Inviting each and every one of you back to him to find the living water, to put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. And we get talking about this, this virus scare that's going through the world. That doesn't mean we're, we're not prepared and we just completely ignore it. No. But do we lend ourselves to fear and go running around like the sky is falling? No. Because I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. Do we believe he is who he says he is or don't we? We can get caught up in the election. We can say, running around with a chicken with his head cut off going, oh my, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. Or we can say, I know whom I believe and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. Is God who he says he is or is he not? And if he is God over this area, he's got to be God over every area. We don't just get to pick and choose where God is going to be God in our lives. Oh man, my, my worship style and my, oh, I love that worship song and God's going to be God over there. But when it comes to work, you know what? There's a God of business over here. I don't think God quite knows, you know, business like I do. Oh, there's a, there's a family, you know, man, I know God's God over here, but when it comes to my family, this is just the way I need to, I need to manage it. Talk about finances, the exact same thing. It's, a, it's the logic. If I'm, if I'm generous, that means on, in my logical mind, if I give, I, I don't have. Well, if I give something that I've manufactured and I give it away, truthfully, I don't have it anymore. But if I have something that the Lord has given to me and he calls it living water that will never run dry, I can give and give and give and give and I'm never empty. Is he who he says he is or not? 
You see, it comes back to that, I do, I will. I, I can say all day long, I do, I believe. Yes, the word of God is, is, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I believe everything it says in here. But then when it comes to actually walking it out, we kind of go, well, I'm not so sure about that. But when we say, yes, I believe, and then we say, yes, I will keep this covenant and perform these vows, that's when it becomes real. That's when the, the life of Christ wells up with inside of us. So there's a return. There's a, this invitation to come back. And there's this restoration in the return. And over in Joel chapter 2, there's this encouragement that, that the Lord speaks through his prophet Joel. And in verse 12 of Joel chapter 2, he says this, Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. And I just want to stop there for a second because that's not a, a term we use a lot or a word we use a lot. Rend means to tear, to rip. And back in biblical times, back in, in, in Jewish history, and, and, and their, um, they would, when they were mourning, when they were grieving, they would tear their garments as an outward expression. It would notify other people that of the inward condition of their heart. And what it had gone, just like anything else that, that we as humans do a good job in twisting and warping, what they would do is, is they would just simply, even if they didn't feel it inside and they wanted people, you know, and they had to kind of show remorse, they would just kind of tear their garments without any inward heart change. And, and this is what, what, uh, Joel is talking about when he's saying, you know, I'm inviting my people to come back. It's not just this outward external grief. It's something that's inside going, you know what? I really need God to do work in my life. Uh, there's, this, there's this change and this transformation that's going on. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your hearts, not your garments. You know, it's the same thing in, 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 uh, in David's life when they're talking about the, the, the offerings that are given. And, and these, these offerings, you know what? The sacrifices, it says, that, that the Lord says, the sacrifices the Lord appreciates and, and accepts are, are not the, the, the fat of, of rams and, and, and cows and calves and things like that. What does it say? The, the offerings that are acceptable and pleasing to the Lord are what? A broken and contrite heart. It says, Lord, you won't, you won't despise an offering that's given out of a broken and contrite heart. You see, we can do all sorts of things on the external. We can do so, all sorts of things on the proclamation side of it. But when our heart is rended, when our heart is torn from the inside out, it affects the way we move. And that, that is something that, that God just goes, oh man, now that I can use. So God's calling his people to a heartfelt response and a return. Over in Luke 15, we have a story of a, of a son who is pushed away from his father. Another illustration that is so consistent throughout so many other parts of scripture and another illustration that so often identifies with our lives, how we've pushed away from the father We've gone off on our own and, and figured out how we can do things on our own. It's empty. It says there in Scripture that he came to his senses. I like to believe that this is another place where God reveals himself and he says, here I am. 
How many times have you been in a setting or a situation, you've been pushing back from God, you've been maybe even running from God, and, and you, hear, you feel this tap on your shoulder, and you know it's the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, here I am. It doesn't matter how far you run, how far you go, it doesn't matter how much you reject or resist me or even curse me, I'm coming after you. And it says here that this young man came to his senses and he says, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to return to my father's house. You know what it says? That even when he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. That's the heart of the father. That's the heart of the father. You know, he's not a God who's pointing his finger and going, you dirty, rotten person. You, you double-crossed me. You, you forsake me. You, you, you ran off. You, you, you embarrassed me. There's a whole lot of finger-pointing and tongue-lashing that we, each of one of us could certainly deserve, but he doesn't do that. Arms wide open. He says, kill the fat calf. Let's have a celebration. Let's have a party. Why? Because my, my son... My daughter, who has pushed back and rejected me and run off, is home. There's reason and cause for celebration in this return. You know, so many of us, we reject, we push. We've been chasing other things. We've been serving other gods. We've even been serving the God of ourselves. We've talked about areas of our lives. Like I said, we've been specifically talking about giving. But I want to ask you questions. Where have you been running? Where have you been doing your own thing? What have you been worshiping? What has caught your attention? What have you been chasing after? What are those things other than God that you've placed in a high priority? Is it your security? Is it your health? Is it your status? Is it your reputation? Is it your physical abilities? Is it your financial resources? Maybe it's your education or your knowledge. You know, we say knowledge is power. Is it your relationships? Is it intimacy? friends, acquaintances. I simply want you to ask the Lord to reveal what's going on. Reveal his heart to you. And just like Joel encouraged God's people to repent and to return, to renew that relationship with the one true God. I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes.